Good morning, church family. So we have three objects front and center in the church auditorium. Uh, The first and most obvious is the pulpit. This is where God's word is preached. And the second object is directly behind the pulpit. It's our baptistry. That's where those who respond to the preaching of God's word publicly profess their faith in Christ. Then the third object is in front of the pulpit. It's the communion table. And this is where those who have come to faith in Christ and been baptized celebrate their union with him and with his church. These three objects stand front and center in our auditorium because together they make up the essence of a true gospel church. A true church is one in which God's word is faithfully preached and the two ordinances are faithfully administered. And this morning, we have an opportunity to celebrate the ordinance of communion. If you're not familiar with communion, it is a practice that traces back to Christ himself. The scriptures tell us that the night before our Lord died, he gathered with his 12 disciples in an upper room. There they enjoyed a feast together. And then after the feast... Christ inaugurated this little ceremony, and what he did was he took a little bit of bread, and all of his disciples took some bread, and he told them to take and eat, for this represented his body. And then Christ took a cup of wine, and all of his disciples took a cup, and he said they were to drink this, for this represented the covenant which he was ratifying with his shed blood. And Christ declared that this little ceremony should be practiced at regular intervals by his disciples from, the, from that moment all the way through until his second coming. So you understand that the 2,000 years ago when Christ was here, this was just his first coming. He came in humility to secure our redemption. But one day in the future, he will come again in power and glory to consummate our salvation. And so Christ declared that during this whole interregnum between first and second comings, his disciples should gather at regular intervals to observe this supper. He said this supper would function as a perpetual reminder to his disciples of what it took to create the church. We have our salvation, and the church itself has its existence because Christ shed his blood for us. Then he also said it was to be an expression of our eager anticipation of his return. At the end of that first observance, he said that until he comes again, he would not eat and drink with his church. In other words, we would continue to eat and drink these elements, but we would do so with his physical absence. His absence would give us anticipation for the moment that he would return when we could eat together. Again, Okay, so this is what communion is all about. It is an observance of the local church. It is enjoyed by the disciples of Christ to remember his sacrifice and to anticipate his return. And four times per year, our church sets aside its regular worship service in order to devote itself exclusively to the Lord's Supper. And if, you're, uh, if this is your first time here at Grace Baptist Church, here's how it's going to work today. We are still not fully uh, back to normal again, and so we're participating in the Lord's Supper a little bit differently than is, is normal. 
Hopefully you saw that table with the communion packets just outside this auditorium. And hopefully you picked one of those up and brought it into the auditorium with you. Um, if you did not notice the table, it's okay. You can just head out there now, grab one of the packets, and then you can come right back in. Uh, no, no big deal. I'm going to ask you to hang on to those packets for the entirety of this morning's worship service. We'll partake of those elements at the conclusion of the service. And as the service unfolds today, we're going to be reminded of the truths of the gospel, which we are celebrating in communion. And the service will also unfold in an untypical fashion. So in a normal worship service, most of our singing is done at the first half, and then my sermon takes up the second half of the service. But today we're changing that up. The songs will be uh, interspersed throughout the service. And then my sermon will not be delivered all at once. It will come in pieces throughout the hour. And we do this just to make the communion service feel different from a typical service. We want this to be a special occasion. We want it to feel special. And so that's why we're going to do things a little differently this morning. Then at the end of the service, this will be the climax of our time together. We will take out those packets and partake of the elements together. I'll say a few words, I'll offer a prayer, and then I'll lead us as we partake in unison. And then we'll do the same thing with the cup. I'll say a few words, I'll offer a prayer, and then together we will all partake. So if you're, if you're not sure how this is going to go, just follow my lead and everything will, will be just fine. Well, right now we're going to prepare our hearts for this service. So we're going to have the instrumentalist play while we spend some time in silent prayer.
So Communion Sundays are an opportunity for us to meditate on the gospel. And this morning, we're going to look at the gospel through the lens of John chapter 1, verse 29. John 1, 29. This was our call to worship. You'll also find this uh, printed in your bulletin insert. And here's what it says. It says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Friends, most of us are so familiar with these words that it's difficult for us to imagine the impact they would have had on their original hearers. But these words would have hit those hearers like a hurricane. See, they were uttered by John the Baptist. He was the last of the Old Covenant prophets. And he spoke these words to a people who were longing for the arrival of their Messiah. See, for millennia, God's people had been receiving these promises that Messiah was coming. Someone who would save the world. They couldn't wait for him to come. Well, now, here he was standing in their midst. And it was John the Baptist's great privilege to point him out and to say, There he is. Messiah has finally come. But then he uses this title for the Messiah. He calls him the Lamb of God. Now, this title is not found anywhere in the Old Testament scriptures. No one had ever heard this title used of Messiah before. So John the Baptist had created it. Yet his hearers would have had a good understanding of its meaning because they were deeply familiar with Israel's sacrificial system. Let me explain. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, we find what some have called a scarlet thread or a trail of blood running through its pages. And it really begins at the very start of our Bibles in Genesis chapter 3. Right after our first parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, they, of course, plunged themselves and all their posterity under the curse of sin and death. And for the first time in their lives, they experienced guilt and shame. They, they were embarrassed of who they were. So... One of the first things that God did after this was to slay an animal in the garden and then to clothe Adam and Eve using the skins of that animal. So, in other words, God covered their shame with a sacrifice. This was teaching an important lesson to Adam and Eve that the wages of sin is death. And if they were not going to die immediately, then a substitute would have to die in their place. And so God slew the animal, and he clothed their shame with that animal. And then on that night, many years later, when God delivered the children of Israel from their bondage in Egypt, God promised that he would rain destruction and judgment on that nation. But he told the Israelites that they could be spared from that destruction by slaying a lamb and then putting the blood of that lamb over the doorposts of their homes. And as the angel of death passed over the nation of Israel, any household covered with the blood of a lamb would be spared death. Once again, the Israelites were learning that their life would come through the death 
of a substitute. And then when God established the Israelites as a nation in the promised land, he instructed them with regard to many intricate sacrifices. And so there were guilt offerings that God prescribed. When individuals sinned against God, they were required to go to the temple and offer animals in sacrifice to cover over their sins. And then the nation itself was required to offer a sacrifice once per year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And on this day, the blood of an animal was carried into the very presence of God and sprinkled upon the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. And atonement was made for the sins of Israel for one year. And friends, throughout the Old Testament era, rivers of blood flowed from these animal sacrifices. In fact, years ago, archaeologists were digging under the site of Herod's temple, and they found these six-foot-wide stone culverts under the temple. These apparently had been used to divert water into the temple to wash away the pools of blood from all of these animal sacrifices. This was a a grisly thing. It was a a grotesque thing, and it went on for millennia. But they were instituted by God as a reminder that sin is costly and that sin brings death. And that if we are going to live, then an atonement for our sins must be made. That was the lesson to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and to the Israelites In their escape from Egypt, it was the lesson to the Jews throughout the nation of Israel's lifetime with their sacrificial systems. And now John the Baptist was looking at Jesus and saying to the people, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was declaring that Jesus had come to be our sacrificial lamb, a once and for all substitutionary sacrifice for our sins, the sacrifice that would bring an end to all other sacrifices. Through his death, we would have eternal life. This is what John was declaring when he said, Behold the Lamb of God. And friends, let's sing about this amazing sacrifice together. So Christ came to be our atoning sacrifice, but he also came to be our God-provided sacrifice. We see this in John's words as well. He said, behold, the Lamb of God, or the Lamb from God. This is an amazing thing. You know, under the old covenant, before Jesus came, people had to go to their own herds and they had to choose one of their own animals. And then they had to take it to the tabernacle and then later to the temple and they sacrificed it. Of course, these actions did not save anyone. No one has ever been saved by their own works. But these were actions required by God and performed in faith. And it was intended to point ahead to the coming sacrifice of Christ. And now, here Christ was. He had finally come. 
And he was God's own son. He was a lamb that God was providing. Sacrifice that God would give. And it was the sacrifice which would end all sacrifices. It's the reason why God's people do not offer their own sacrifices any longer. My friends, all of this is is a point worth emphasizing, that forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God do not rely on anything that we do. There is nothing that we can do, in fact, to earn favor with God. See, our salvation rests entirely on what God has done for us. God has provided a sacrifice Uh, an atonement for all of our sins, a means by which we might be reconciled with our Maker. And the only thing that we do, if we can call it an action at all, is to simply receive God's gift in repentant faith. You know, understanding that, that faith is all that we have to offer really brings an end to legalism, doesn't it? Legalism is the idea that we can gradually earn the favor of God, essentially earn a a spot in heaven by doing our own good works. Scriptures say there are no good works we can offer to earn that kind of favor with God. In fact, this is what separates the true faith of Christ from all other world religions. Every other religion that, that you can explore will say to you, here are things that you must do in order to earn God's favor. You have to make a pilgrimage. You have to give these alms. You have to do these deeds. You have to to offer these works of penance. But the faith of Christ simply says, believe in the one who has done all the work for you. Receive that gift, and you will have eternal life. There's no room for legalism in the Christian faith. This also brings an end to all pride. For Ephesians 2, 8, 9 say, By grace we are saved through faith, and this not by works, so that no one can boast. See, there's no room for boasting in the Christian life. Now, are good works important to us? Yes, and they're important to the Scriptures. But not as a means of earning God's favor. Rather, They are there as expressions of gratitude for what God has done for us. They are evidences of a life that has been changed in its orientation from one of selfishness to one now of God-directedness. There's nothing we do to, to atone for our own sins. My friends, God has done all the work for us through Christ. Let us praise God for this great work and let us marvel that He should should give us such a gift of grace. Let's sing about this together. So Christ came as our atoning sacrifice, and He came as our God-provided sacrifice. And now finally, we see that he also came as an all-sufficient sacrifice. Look what John the Baptist said. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he is the Lamb whose sacrifice is fully sufficient for all the sins of all people for all time. 
Now, friends, how can one man's sacrifice be sufficient for all? Well, it's sufficient for all because of who this man is. Not just human, but also fully divine. Son of God as well as Son of Man. And his unique identity as the God-man is what gives infinite value to his sacrifice. The Puritan minister, Jonathan Edwards, explained it well. He said, quote, Christ's blood is a most precious thing, and it must be of infinite worth and value, and therefore sufficient to purge away sin, which is of infinite demerit. The least drop of Christ's blood is of more worth in God's accounts than all the sacrifices that ever were slain from the beginning of the world until this time. He makes another statement in his sermon on Hebrews 9.13. He says, It was the deity of Christ that gave infinite value and virtue to his sufferings. His body was of infinite value. Then in another place, he says, By reason of the infinite dignity of his person, Christ's sufferings were looked upon as of infinite value and equivalent to the eternal sufferings of a finite creature. And he spilled his blood from respect to the glory of God's majesty, which we had injured, and respect to God's will commanding him. His obedience was of infinite value because he was at infinite expense to obey. Here's what, what all of these texts are saying saying that there are two ways to pay the infinite debt that we owe to God because of our sin. There are two ways it can be paid. One way is for finite people to pay it forever and ever. Never exhaust what is owed. The second way is for an infinite person to pay it all in one moment. See, finite people require eternity to pay an eternal debt. An infinite person can pay an eternal debt in an instant. And that is what Christ did for us on the cross. As the God-man, he was the infinite person, fully able to serve as a substitute for all of us. One man is substitute for all people. One death, one punishment sufficient to cover what was owed by all. Christ did indeed experience hell in his moments on the cross. He experienced for all people, for all time. The atoning work of Christ is sufficient for all people, and it is also effective for all those who will believe. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that's Jesus, the Lamb of God, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So his atonement was of infinite worth, sufficient to cover the sins of all. And it becomes effective for all those who receive the gift by faith. My friends, as we celebrate communion together, these are the truths that we are celebrating that the Lamb of God came into the world, that He lived a perfect life, that He died a substitutionary death, one fully sufficient to cover the multitude of our sins to give us a righteous standing before God. A, a man that, that we have received in repentance and faith. 
man that we are now joined to spiritually and with one another as well by virtue of our common faith and common spirit. Friends, as we partake of communion shortly, let us be thinking about these truths. And if you are here today having not yet embraced Christ, would you consider His claims this morning? That this is who Jesus is. This is what He came to do. Would you receive Him in faith so that you might partake of these elements as one truly joined to Him? Well, just before we partake, friends, let's sing one more hymn together, a hymn celebrating the greatness of our Savior. My friends, it has been a joy to share God's word with you this morning. And now let's take out that packet and prepare to partake of these elements together. We'll begin by peeling off that first layer and taking hold of the bread. Now the scriptures tell us that on the night in which our Lord was betrayed, he first took the bread. Then he offered a prayer of thanks. So allow me to pray. Thank God for the bread before us this morning. Lord, as we come to the table, we are so grateful for your son. We thank you for sending him in love to be our king, our guide, and our atonement for sin. We thank you for him, Lord. We thank you that through faith in him, we are able to experience new life and joy and purpose. Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we have because of him. We thank you for this bread, which represents his body. And for the partaking of this bread, symbolizing his union with us and our union with him and our union with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, I pray that we would never lose our sense of wonder at what you have done for us, your willingness to to see your son's body broken for our sakes. Lord, help us to receive this with the proper thanksgiving, Lord, thanksgiving that you are due. Amen. Now a moment for silent prayer as we prepare to partake. And Jesus broke the bread and said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then the scriptures tell us that in the same way, our Lord took the cup also, and he gave thanks. So allow me to pray in thanks for the cup before us. Lord, we are so grateful for this cup and the juice contained therein, which represents the blood of our Lord shed for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, it was through that shed blood that our new covenant with you was ratified 
that we've come to enjoy all of the spiritual blessings that we now have. Lord, as, as we drink from our cups, would you help us to draw near to you? Lord, would you draw near to us? Would you renew our commitment? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now for another moment of silent prayer. Now let's peel back that second layer. Let's listen to the words of Jesus once more. As Jesus lifted up the cup, he said, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Then after the supper was concluded, Jesus, excuse me, the scriptures tell us that our Lord Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn together. And so we'll conclude our service in the same way. Matt, come and lead us. I'm going to apologize in advance, but would you please stand with me one more time? We're going to sing a beautiful hymn, all four verses of The Power of the Cross. Thank you. you. may be seated. As we begin to close our service in just a minute, we'll have our offertory. But before that, just a quick reminder of the ways that you can continue to maintain your giving. If you're joining us online, we have an online portal on our church website if you would like to give that way. Or we have boxes strategically located in the building in the back hallway as well as the fellowship hall. And then if you need um, an opportunity through the week to maintain your giving, we have an exterior box uh, just to the side here of our building. So please continue to consider what the Lord may lay on your heart. And with that, we'll have our offertory. As we close this morning, uh, just a few notes and reminders for you. Uh, beginning with the insert that we have in the bulletin this morning, uh, open house for Serena Domzik uh, this coming Saturday, June 12th from 1 to 4. That'll be at our home in uh, Marshall Township, so hope to see uh, many of you there. In addition, uh, one item that is not in the bulletin, but the ladies' retreat at Camp Barakal is scheduled for October 1 through 3. And uh, we ask you to check your calendars and your availability. And if you have any questions, please see Sally Quilhit. And again, that is October 1st through the 3rd. Uh, as we normally mention, we like to remind everyone of our growth group hour that will start in probably 10 or 15 minutes. And Pastor continues his series on suffering. 
uh, today a biblical perspective on the relief of physical suffering. So you want to be here for that. And finally, two quick notes. Um, first, the fresh food distribution will be happening here in just under two weeks from now, Wednesday, June 16th, beginning at 10 a.m. And then Sunday, June 20th, uh, during our morning worship service, we'll have a special parent dedication, and that, again, is Father's Day. So we look forward to those opportunities here at our church. And we'll close this morning with words from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 3, 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You're dismissed.